are now joining Future Proofing Now, season two, episode number six. And, uh, you know, to time code this, I guess, we're living through this uh, pandemic of coronavirus. Hopefully, four, five months from now, we'll all consider this just a bad nightmare gone wrong. But we do have a topic we're going to talk about today called Leading Business Models of the Future. Uh, we've identified 52 of them, and we've brought together a expert group of panelists together to discuss and maybe given the pandemic that's going on, provide a, a new shine in terms of where business models are heading to in the future. Um, we'll hopefully have some discussion, a bit of a debate, and we actually are gonna turn this discussion into a product as well. So I want to uh, introduce uh, my co-host as always, Andrew, it's our 21st episode together. We feel like family now. We can now drink legally. <laughs> And apparently the liquor stores in Canada are still open in case we needed to do that. They well. are. No shutdown yet. And Joanne is always our community manager that makes everything work. And uh, she is our Geppetto. Uh, and thankfully we haven't uh, had any major issues yet. So um, so this is a topic we've spent a lot of time in over the over last year as, as introduction. We've, we've probably read over 300 articles and there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff out there too. We identified 181 business model candidates. We looked at 100 different companies. We sent out, begged people, said, please, you're expert at this. Please answer these surveys. Uh, we've now brought four expert panelists to the table. And really, what we've got on our hands is two things. One, a codified ranked universe of 52 leading business models. And I'll say one and a half topics, because I know, Andrea, we've talked about not only let's do the business models thing as we had planned, but also given COVID-19, kind of what should we think about that in, in context of that? So I don't know if you want to add anything in terms of the, the time era that we're sitting in right now. Yeah, well, one of the things that we talk about a lot is the way that life imitates, uh, real, uh, imitates theory sometimes. Uh, it is unbelievable that we've been on the taking the pulse of people just in this very moment and the, the feeling of shift that everyone's having. So three of the topics that we'll talk about today, one is this notion of triple bottom line. You know, it used to be kind of this great theory. Um, people are seeing more and more that we're a connected world and that it really matters to have the kinds of values and, uh, and interconnectedness. And, and that's really interesting. The second is we've been talking about data and never have we felt more in need of data than during this moment where we're trying to make decisions without necessarily all the information that we'd like. And number three is this notion of what companies are doing. And we're not trying to say this to be kind of a, a buzzword, but this is a moment where, this, that, where the ability to see what's happening and then take action is as important as anything. Um, and we look at things, we'll talk in a little bit about the way that some of the really great leaders have stepped forward as well as some of the ways that some companies are just tran transparent in their sort of self-promotion at this time. So we are optimists and we want to look at the best and we're hoping in this community that we'll come away with some really important kind of mind shifts around what we can do as leaders. And certainly I ran across an article just the other day about you know, how this is actually changing business models. It's funny, I've got a local grocery store they're finally getting into e-commerce. They're doing it through PDFs and uh, phoning and whatever. But I mean, even small mom and pop grocery have turned their business models given what we're going through right now. Um, so with no further ado, we've got a very smart uh, and enlightened group of panelists. Why don't we introduce them? Uh, I'll let you take the first two here, Andrew. Yeah, well, let me introduce Dave Stritzinger. And I know Dave as uh, 
visionary in uh, lots of ways. He's what we call a tech and channel innovation expert and has experience as a veteran in the wireless industry and has built technology solutions that move cell phones in and out of network operators and retail channels so that he's got that backdrop. And understanding that, he also understands the OEM relationships. And I would say that Dave is a world expert in terms of omni-channel distribution. And he'll talk a little bit about that from some experience he's had leading that. He's also a serial business builder. And so he has been a CEO, a founder, senior leader in uh, companies, one of which was acquired by Target and Microsoft. So um, we're really excited to have his perspective. Thank you. And then Sonny will, Sonny is the Director of Business Development and Strategy at Bosch, and she helped shape the future of mobility with shared electrified and autonomous vehicles. And she was also Chief of Staff to the member of the Board of Bosch and was responsible for Asia Pacific. And before Bosch, she worked at Siemens and she speaks five languages fluently and is uh, really what I think very important is in her personal life, she likes to play soccer, but also sing karaoke. So there might be a moment today where we just <laughs> tap into that superpower, don't know. Multi-talented panel, we are. Uh, I'll introduce Carla Conson. She's a fellow Torontonian. So uh, I obviously uh, hold my Canadians near and dear. Um, every time I look at something happening in the industry, it's like, oh, Carla's already speaking at that, or, oh, Carla's already on to that topic. So she's um, stumbled onto two things that I, I love about the future, the future of work and machine learning. She's got, uh, she's CEO of two different um, companies, Open Gravity, which I'm insanely curious about, uh, and Collective IQ. She's a seasoned business leader. Uh, I thought she was great for this topic just because you've, you've been in so many different industries at so many different levels. And um, yeah, I thought you could impart a lot of wisdom in terms of, you know, a, a broad palette of business models. Thanks, Sean. And then finally, Shelly Kuypers, who I've known forever, it seems like. Um, she's a valued friend. I don't know if she's from phoning in from Salt Spring Island or, um, or England or Calgary or wherever she's hanging out. She has a lot of different hairnets, but I think the, the two ones that I sparked to, she's, she's head of something called Iovia, which... I think has coined or minted the term participation commerce. Um, she may update me on that one. And uh, she's also in charge or at least co-founded something called the 51, which invests in female founders and provides capital. So um, I know there's a ton of other stuff in there, Shelley. Anything I left out that was pertinent? No, that's good. Hi, Sean. Hello, how are you as always? All right, let's, uh, let's get into the topic. But before we do, I thought maybe this might be a good setup question and um, great that Sunny's uh, being able to join us right now too. Um, we're actually hosting a separate session. It's less of us talking and more the community talking. I will give one of my colleagues, Roland Harwood, credit on this one. We had a really good session with his company or his uh, movement called Liminal where we got probably 60 people together um, a couple of weeks ago and just had a chat in breakout rooms about what's happening now, uh, what do we think is going to happen uh, next, and when do we think it's going to happen next. So if you're curious, we'll leave a link later on in uh, the session, but certainly this time Thursday, we'll have more of an open forum in terms of this. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Andrea? Yeah, I mean, yesterday, Boma did a 24-hour one. I was saying earlier that, you know, the notion of having a an alternative to our news uh, is really great, especially when we have so much on our minds. And also we did uh, participate in House of Beautiful Business and there, you know, this incredible community that's coming together because it used to be there was a company called Second Life 
that was, uh, you know, a kind of virtual way of living. And uh, uh, here it's still in existence. I feel like now our second life has become our first life and we hunger more for interconnectedness and conversation. So that's, that was the spirit behind it. We won't be talking, we'll be facilitating conversations and very excited to try Zoom rooms. So that'll be on Thursday. Breakout I thought rooms. we threw it out to our panel here too now, just to, we're talking about business models and where we head in the future. Given where we are currently, given kind of our current state of lockdown or quarantine or whatever, um, and, and kind of looking at business, any, any kind of cursory thoughts in terms of how we look at our future business models given what's just happened? And, and that's anybody, for the, the panel. Anybody can jump on. Anybody can chime in. That's always. Oh, yeah, we raise our hands. Sorry. Okay. And then, yeah, it's easier to physically raise a hand. Go ahead. Raise your hand and then Sean will call on somebody first. All right, so, Dave, you're up. I think it's like a great time to be thinking right now and preparing. Like you don't have like uh, the onslaught of your everyday at this moment. So I think like, you know, you really have a luxury of being able to, you know, think and to uh, you know, plot your course, whether you know what it is or not, you, get a, you, you actually have some thought cycles, I think that you know, this time allows you to uh, prepare for your next move. Any other thoughts from our panelists? Carla? I, I would agree. And, and I think um, like any other times in, in the economic cycle where there's been a, a significant change, this is a time of reset uh, where a lot of old economic models will give way to new ones um, in, in a significant way. But two thoughts would be that there are two key principles. One is the importance of humanity and empathy. Um, so understanding people as people and connecting, but secondly, um, supported by data um, as, as the key fuel um, for creating that connection. Shelly, anything from yourself? Uh, I, I just think it's been really interesting. I think, yeah, there's thinking time, but um, at the 51, we've got a portfolio of 17 companies. And so we're going through each company um, one by one, re-looking at their business model, their budget. Uh, so it's been a ton of work. Um, there hasn't been very much downtime since the onslaught of the virus. Um, so it's just been... Like you were saying, Carla, it's kind of that, you know, what are the facts? What's the reality of the situation? Um, coupled with, you know, really empathetic discussions around how we can kind of all transition, so. I like the uh, idea of empathy as well. Certainly I'm, I've um, run up um, kind of firsthand in terms of just some of the pain and struggles that people are going through. I mean, about a third of our workforce is actually freelance and for all intents and purposes, a lot of those people, their their work has come to a, uh, a very harsh and sudden stop. And so certainly if people are online today, um, my hope is this provides a little bit of a respite, but also maybe some help in terms of how you think about the future as well. Um, so Sunny, Sunny, do you have some thoughts too? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely see that um, it changes our daily work on how we collaborate and how we need to work together, switching to everything virtual. So a lot of strategy meetings where normally it used to be face-to-face um, is now switching towards Skype and I feel like from a company that is really used to a lot of face-to-face -face meeting with a lot of you know tradition with more than 130 years it really changes um, the way how people think act collaborate and also try to find different forms of, of communicating and exchanging um, thoughts and working on strategies together 
Now, from the market side, I mean, uh, our main business in the, is in the automotive industry, and you might have heard in the news that a lot of OEM, big OEM, are shutting down the production plants, and us being depending on the production of vehicles and the big OEM, this has a big impact on our business because we supply essentially components um, and solutions to these companies. So um, it is quite of a serious time at the moment with a lot of uncertainty what it means for the plus 400,000 people that work in the company, especially um, the blue collar companies who work in plants. So I think from a labor law and also um, safety perspective from the, for the people who are working there, um, it definitely means a lot of uncertainty and also potential cut down in um, working time and also labor force, which is really under discussion at the moment and also high dependency on the government in Germany, for example, to support these kind of measures that big companies need to take. So yeah insight from from my perspective well it's almost a, a good bridge to today um and i will say one of the caveats in terms of all the research that went into our 52 models um it was all done pre for all intents purposes pre-coronavirus and so as much as i see some consistencies um most of the data that we brought in was um was pre any of the the massive pandemic that's happened um, a bit of a education 101, I guess, uh, if you're familiar with business model generation and kind of Osterwalder's kind of um, nine part um, type of approach, uh, we've kind of uh, put things into different categories here. We've put things into four suits. They're almost like card suits, if you will. And so, you know, the left side of this whole sheet is all about making stuff, if I simplified it, and the right side of it is all about selling stuff. And so, We've decided let's group our leading business models into four camps of 13 that follow along the lines of some of what Osterwald has done here. I don't know if you have um, any thoughts no. on Let's roll. Let's roll. I think it's. Andrea. Um, Andrea loves my chaotic maps um, <laughs> and charts and collages. We, we did look at about 181 of these, as mentioned. We're going to talk about the leading 52. We're marrying, you know, I have, a, I have a regular standing Friday poker crew. So naturally for me, we're marrying. Kind of playing cards with business models here building a deck of business models for the future and once again we've we've built four categories around that so these are our new suits and i would say and obviously this would be something along the lines of what our cards will look like um, hopefully helpful in terms of companies in terms of just as they look and seriously consider and question where their business is going they can actually look at 52 distinctive cards and say hmm I wonder if that makes sense and would that be right for our business and who's done it before and what industries are actually using that type of deal and, and what conditions are for success. And I would say we're going to get into the thick of the discussion soon, but I think um, if I saw eight prevail or seven prevailing themes across all of what we've learned, it seems like data 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even talked about data as a business model. It's in there now for sure. Open is viewed as much more desirable than closed. Speed and flexibility and agility, very important. Assets, and we're seeing that with a lot of businesses. It was interesting that you mentioned that lines are, are actually shutting down now, Cindy, because you know, certainly if you run a Boeing or if you run a train company, um, certainly your assets are a burden right now to you because they're not moving. Um, and I think just as the larger uh, continuum of business models we look at, um, it seems like it's great if you can run a business that doesn't, isn't too asset heavy. Digital is touching every model. 
Uh, big is not necessarily what is going to um, give you success, but certainly bigness in terms of partnerships and scope and recurring revenues is where the gold is had. So those are seven kind of things that kind of cut through most of what we had seen. And Andrea? Yeah, so one of the things that we think about from the Future Proofing Next perspective is there's some markets that are what we call a waterbed, right? There's a, a fixed number of things. And within it, if one goes down, the other goes up, I'll give an example. If I suddenly have more money, I'm not going to eat more calories. I might shift from eating the calories from a fast food to eating the calories from a restaurant or eating the calories from home or grab and go if I'm driving and commuting. But basically, there's a, a given in terms of like what Andrea as an individual will eat. Calories will be pretty much consistent. And as things change, I'm going to find a way to, within that waterbed, um, shift from doing it A or B way. Example is, you know, I know Jose Andres and others have come forward and said, we've got to close our restaurants. I live in San Francisco, Bay Area slash Silicon Valley, and, you know, our restaurants are closed. And so uh, some restaurants have actually said, okay, we're going to be a soup kitchen or a neighborhood kitchen or a ghost kitchen and create a way for the neighbors to get the provisions that they need. Others have shuttered. So within that, you know, I know all of my neighbors are still eating. So which of these markets is what we call a waterbed? And where are there opportunities for us collectively to think of expanding the pie or shifting or having new uh, supply chain models? So as we look at these, you know, not everybody, you know, as Sunny was saying, it's not possible to say, well, you know, we need people to keep buying cars right now because that might be something where we shut it and we just use the, the resource that we have or we do a substitute. But there are some opportunities where we can do this waterbed. And, and I think that that's pretty interesting because that's a place where we can be nimble quickly. So back to you, Sean. And the only other caveat, people go, oh, we just have to land on that one model and be great for us. And really, if you look at some of the more remarkable businesses, they tend to tease out different um, business models within each one of our four camps. Uh, and I would argue Netflix is probably successful based on four different things. I think, you know, they were one, one of the people at the forefront of subscription, but essentially, you know, when I look at mass customization, what I see on my screen, my profile is um, different than everybody else in the world. Uh, I have a strange viewing habits on Netflix. And so um, things about zombies will come up more for me than anybody else in the world. Um, it's a curated experience um, as um, we all know. And so you've got this amalgam of different business models that they've landed on. And obviously they've turned it into something within the video streaming world to be, um, to be uh, boastful about. And last thing here, before we get into the models, everybody, there's always one person in a crowd going, well, surely they didn't think about that model. I'm really pissed off that they're not presenting that. This was our regret list. These were the eight things that barely missed our 52. So they're not at the worst part of our 181, but, um, I, I put them up more for the fact that they get a lot of conversation, but certainly when we surveyed people, when we looked at the reality of the future, um, they either weren't big enough, weren't growing fast enough, or were kind of business models. Everybody says, oh, razor and blades. Yes, the Gillette model is a perfect one that we should be in, but really in reality didn't make the grade. So I don't know. Uh, I have, yeah, I have one last con comment on this and then we can throw it. Well, we'll go into the, into the, the suits. Um, there's a meta look at this. I think something Carla said was really interesting. Most of us haven't had the luxury of thinking. You know, I like what, what Dave said. You know, this is a good time for think cycles. Most of us are in response mode, like Shelley was saying. You know, we're just trying to put the fires out today. But if we think of today's conversation as something to reflect on moving forward as well, 
um, this notion of data, this notion of humanity that Carla talked about. We have more data than we used to have, right? And so what are the ways that we can ask different questions? The humanity is just so much on the front burner right now in terms of, you know, we have to be interdependent, we can't be greedy. It's just not a, a moment to be that. And I also think that some of these models, although as Sean said, we, we did the survey before this happened and kind of in the midst of it, but at the same time, there were some things that were coming to the forefront anyway. And I think the why behind these models is really important for us to think about. Why is it that the models that are in each of the, of the suits have, been, have risen to the top? And I think that that will be really interesting to think about as we talk about each of them. So back to you, Sean. All right, let's get into it. It's our first suit. Um, this is more on the making stuff side of things. We looked at, you know, arguably about 40 different assets and structures. Uh, the way we're going to approach all these suits is I'll just present what the, the leading four, I guess the ace, king, queen, jack of each suit is. Uh, we'll leave the remaining nine on screen, but pretty much have a discussion around um, the asset class in total and then, um, you know, uh, some, some level within. Um, on this one, um, you know, these were the four that ticked to the top. Um, and I shouldn't be surprised given how much we've looked at AI as a future enabler of business, the data um, as a resource is one of the most valued things going. If you look at companies that are um, you know, increasing in value, most of them have a data stream that they have access to, you know, Google most notably. Uh, decentralized, disintermediated. So if you think about the blockchain movement, if you think about a lot of the social innovation movement that, that are going on around the world, they have been um, promoted based on, you know, how do we actually work within our local communities or work within uh, a non-authoritative central kind of um, place. And so certainly that's uh, being a driver of business models. I'm not too sure if we're back in the Linux completely open access days, but certainly, you know, having a commons or an open access, it's so much more enabling as a business to be open than closed nowadays. I would argue most tech companies wouldn't exist if they didn't have some openness to their um, business models. And then finally, a little bit of a surprise for us, but it was uh, certainly on our survey was uh, very, very high. Drop shipping. Um, so essentially, you don't own the assets, um, and you are just the matchmaker enabler between. I have a buyer over here, a seller over here. I don't want to uh, carry any inventory. I don't want to make any assets. And so, if you look at things like Shopify and Big Commerce, they become enablers for actually having companies overnight set up business with a particular niche or with a, a particular audience or, or product class, and actually not own any of that whole. Um, integrated chain. So, so those are the top four. Um, and then these were the ones that fell a little bit uh, below. I'll, I'll ask Andrew if there's any ones on this list of nine here that um, you're kind of looking at with um, kind of either raised eyebrows or interest. Um, I think that the notion of natural resource and raw material based is pretty interesting just because we're about to have a shift in the globe. And, uh, you know, when you trace back where materials come from, it's not as easy as, oh, we have them in our backyard. So I think the geopolitical forces are going to have a lot to do with that. I think that the current change is going to have a lot to do with that. And I would, I'm not a predictor. We're not in the prediction mode, but I would, I would have a, a, a eye on that. And I think number nine, and I would also love for Sunny, especially to talk about lab and incubator because, and well, actually everyone, because I think the very def definition of what a, a lab slash incubator 
um, does in this new world uh, is really important. And I, I, I would love to hear the panelists talk about that. And I also have to interject that people are sidebarring with questions, which is great. And we also have questions that we've collected in advance. So um, I'll be um, doing the social chat in the background uh, to try to manage that. And if we don't hit all of them, we'll get back to you via email afterwards. So thank you for all of that. So I'll throw it out to my panel here. We're talking assets and kind of where producing stuff in the future is going. Any uh, leave thoughts? And I'll, I'll go back to our initial slide of our top four. Um, a quick recap there and then the remaining nine. And then um, just because I know Shelly the most of all of our panelists, I can, I can pick on her more than other people, I think. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll throw this over to Shelly first. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a good topic and a good subsection. I think, you know, for myself um, and the businesses that I'm involved in, um, you know, Sean had talked initially about my company Iovia, which helps big brands build community around creating stuff. And so our work with IKEA and Unilever and Lego is really prominent in that, all the way through to. Um, I have a direct-to-consumer uh, fashion line that's on the west coast of Canada where we make sustainable circular clothing and it's handmade by women in Vancouver. Um, and so two very different business models and business experiences. Um, what we're hearing from the brands today is that that community, that digital community of co-creation and creating value is even more important today. Um, and so we're definitely feeling the pull with um, Iovia. But on the other side of the spectrum where we have this direct-to-consumer line where we have manufactured stuff, um, that business model or that business experience is going through something that's very, very different. Um, so in the case of our direct-to-consumer um, fashion line on the West Coast, um, what we've done there is we've said, um, hey, you know, we're not looking to make any money off of our clothing anymore. Um, in fact, 100% of the proceeds of our of selling our goods are going to go to women in need um, at this point in time. So I think for, for me and for the companies that I'm with right now, I think really very much so on the fly, we are reinventing how we can participate in this pandemic and what is our role. Um, so again, that would just be two very different perspectives um, uh, kind of contributing to this topic. Well, uh, so first of all, on the clothing stuff, um, bravo. Um, thank you for being so altruistic and a, a really good broad strokes kind of thought in terms of your, your two businesses and, and where you're mining mm -hmm. um, business mm -hmm. models. Sunny, I know Andrew mentioned just a minute ago about labs and incubation. Um, you work in a global company that you know, based on at least an external point of view, um, seems to embrace kind of um, the corporate lab and kind of uh, working with either startups or academia or whoever. Um, can you speak to that one maybe a little bit? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, as I said, the company has, has a long history where the core competence has always been on manufacturing and making stuff. So manufacturing components from diesel injections to gas gasoline injections. So that's always been the core business, basically delivering things, making things that meet the needs of the OEM. Now we see that there is a real big shift in the way how people move from A to B, that we are facing um, a huge rise in shared economy 
which where the new companies or new startups like the Ubers, Lyfts, ride-hailing companies are disrupting the way um, how mobility is defined and enabling people to move in different ways through digital platforms. That means um, we, we perceive that the number of um, vehicles that will be produced in the future will be, become less because people will tend to share more rides or share more um, the way how they um, travel from A to B. So that means if the number of vehicles produced will decrease, that means also our revenue will just decrease. And that's why we are now in the situation where, really, where we really face disruption, disruption of our traditional business model to only deliver components, hardware, towards how do we cope with the new players in the mobility landscape that um, offer mobility as, as, a, as a service via platforms, everything as more software-based, data is getting gathered, consumer behavior is shifting. So that's why we are now really in the transition and a transformation phase where we need to deal way more with data-driven business models and, and understanding how these um, platform-based mobility companies work and how we can um, cooperate and, and work with them to become really supplier and partner um, and that's why we have established labs or internal incubators where we really put focus teams in there to really think about what are the future needs and what are the capabilities that we, that we will need if we want to be a sustainable and a leading partner also in the space of digital mobility, which is a very new um, space for us as well. It's interesting. I find most of my friends that work in innovation and manufacturing use the term mobility. Like it doesn't matter if you're in automotive or um, <laughs> something that isn't mobile. Um, mobility seems to be one of those things that gets linked to manufacturing quite a bit. Um, thanks for that. Uh, Dave, any quick thoughts on, uh, on this one? Yeah, I'm, I come from the cell phone business. And so uh, the cell phone business is super, super complicated in terms of channels and products, but you have these thousand dollar assets that are inventory and that when you have a, a carrier that's like a AT&T or Verizon, um, you have thousands of stores of your own, you have thousands of Walmarts and you cannot afford to have these thousand dollar um, SKUs sitting in every store. You know, how can you have a planogram in every store? So you have to take a very, um, in, for years, take a, like a very data-driven approach to say, what's the likely consumer that comes into this store in, in an inner city versus the store that's next to the Neiman Marcus and, you know, some other venue and decide, you know, which assets need to be in that store very efficiently. So there's like one to show and one to go, you know, so you have a, and because the products are so expensive, you know, when a new iPhone comes out, the, I can't sell you a, a used one at any, or a, last year's model at any price. So when Dave walks in the store and I want a new iPhone, 11, there's no price that an iPhone 10 makes sense to me. So you have to write these things down. So in the cell phone industry, we've been very much thinking about how do you put the asset in place from where it needs to come from as efficiently as possible. And I, I see that now, you know, bleeding into other business models, as you suggest, where I was in a, I was up in a ski store and there was so much inventory in the, you know, every size and every color and every jacket. And like, I'm thinking, oh my God, how do they afford this you know, this inventory. So I think these models are trickling down and going across the industry and it's, it's hard to execute on, but it's um, very, very real. 
So I, I have know, a I have I a follow up question for Dave that came from Phil. Um, there's a, a lot of stuff going on in the in the channel in the social channel, um, which is you know kind of interesting because we're looking at um, scarcity, right? So so the question is how do you make these decisions in an equitable and ethical way, especially if there's scarcity in the supply chain? Don't know if you have a thought about that, Dave. Yeah. So so again, like back to uh, everyone can relate to a new iPhone coming out. Right, you say you've got a new iPhone 11 coming out, and there's there's only a certain allocation that's going to happen up front. You know, so how do you discern how to allocate that product amongst your channels? You know, do you you can't give them all to your company stores because now your good partners are not going to have, you know, you're not going to have people walking into Target or Walmart. So there's a, uh, um, uh, you know, have to you have to manage your your price you have to manage your your brand and there's there's uh it's going to vary industry by industry on how are you are going to you know release that product maybe someone that has been exclusive to your brand like they're not going to carry another brand they might get preferred allocation you know so you have your exclusive dealers that will get the allocation and you can you can build exclusivity in how you do that but when you trickle down to the you know the, the fairness um I think it comes down to loyalty and the loyalty element is really going to, you know, have a big play. Why do you get a better seat on the plane? Well, cause you fly all the time, you know? And so that it's, if you're loyal to a brand and you're, you know, I think we probably all found like some of the places like we buy from this farm shop that delivers our milk and stuff once a week. And had you not had a recurring order, you wouldn't have been able to get products, you know, coming in. So I'm like, thank goodness we were customer for a while. So it's, it's hard to allocate scarce things, but I think it, 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 it's going to run along the lines of loyalty. And Carla, do you want to play last uh, anchor person on this one uh, before we move on to the next suit? And I, I will just mention to Andrew, I think, uh, yeah, we do have kind of our social chat channels going off like crazy and I can't access it right now. So uh, if you can yeah, I'm, co I'm covering it. I've, I've got it. Awesome. Yeah. Carla. Oh, muted, muted. A quick point, sorry. Um, uh, if, if you go to the previous slide, what I found fascinating with it is while these, this list was identified for companies that are relevant with hard assets or fairly capital intensive, right? Um, I run a small, medium-sized enterprise um, that is, is primarily service-based with a technology platform separately. And it's equally, uh, it's equally uh, relevant. So you had some themes around um, the importance of data, um, open source um, attitude, um, uh, but also asset free. And what I would like to challenge the, the folks on, on, the, uh, on the phone and, and in the audience is these are equally relevant if you're running a service business in terms of the principles by which you run that business. Um, all of them resonated with me um, with respect to the businesses, the business that I, that I run. That's a really key insight, right? I mean, and it is strange because we were talking about, you know, maybe 20 years ago, this list would have had a, a much more fixed asset basis to it. Um, and, and certainly whether it's service or product. Um, yeah, it seems to be everybody's trying to get out of the asset business to, to make a really kind of bold statement. And maybe just to add to that thought where um, Bosch or our company is coming more from an asset-based uh, asset company producing a lot of things where we now see more and more we need to integrate new services um, that may not be or may not have been our core competence. So we see a lot of startups in this field that when it comes to software development, when it comes to AI-based use cases or services that they are faster and in some of the cases also more advanced, 
where we see the need, you know, you cannot do everything your own. We need to partner and we need to find also with these partners that we identify the right way of collaborating together. And here, sometimes we see a clash between a traditional hardware driven company that is really used to processes, safety, security, and, and really, really long processes of risk management. And when we meet partners that are more working in the software area, they are really nimble, fast, and you know, pivot and adjust their uh, feature development on a daily basis, or maybe even on an hourly basis, which for a hardware driven company is, is quite difficult because the development processes are quite different. So this is definitely a learning process where I feel as a big and also traditional based company, um, we need to learn and be open to understand how these um, medium startup, medium sized startups or also software based startups work, how they think and also make them understand why sometimes from a hardware driven company, we need much more time to develop things or make decisions from a risk perspective and to basically combine these two, two different mindsets and attitudes in working to really um, come to the best outcome possible. And um, doing that, it's, it's not easy, um, but we're working on this and that's why we have these incubators and labs and people who are really focusing on um, understanding how these kind of collaboration ways would work best between big companies and, and smaller startups, which is definitely necessary in the future. I'm going to move on to that. That was a great point, by the way, and I, I think probably very credible from, from somebody that has their roots in manufacturing. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next suit because I find, uh, A, we always go along in these because we got super passionate people um, that love talking about it, but B, um, with a list of 52, if you only get to 39, people will, will bump up against their need for closure, I think. So, um, the kissing cousin of assets and resources is kind of activities and partners. This is kind of what business and digital transformation makes their money about. It's like, how do we configure this stuff in terms of how we make stuff? And we looked at arguably about 40 different business models here. Here's what tumbled to the, the top uh, in this suit. You know, and, and unfortunately, all people's heads are over top here. So I'm looking at this. I think uh, platforms was the ace, uh, if I'm not... Uh, forgetting things. Platforms is the ace and strategic alliances is the king and uh, the queen is bespoke and mass customization and Jay is co-created and development partners. Wonderful. Thank you, partner in crime. Um, and I think you've probably all heard people go, oh, we need to be a platform business now, right? I think that's been a mantra for, for management for the last five years. I think if you look at whether it's B2B or B2C, strategic alliances have played a big role. I know I've spent a lot of time in blockchain recently, and I know the bloom has come a little bit off the rose of that. I think we're going to come out of the hype cycle, I guess. But essentially, every bank, every manufacturer in the world didn't do it by themselves. They actually got together with somebody and actually tried to partner up as an alliance. Um, we've talked about Netflix already in terms of mass customization. But if you look at most businesses, um, as long as there's some penchant for variety or a distinctive need that a customer has, you can probably turn that into a bespoke mass customized business and, and not, you know, have to go back to the tailoring days of, you know, uh, be so costly for that to be prohibitive for most of your audience. And then the final thing is um, co-created development partners. If I think about major conferences like Salesforce, Dreamforce, kind of half that conference is development partners that have come to the table uh, in the launch of whatever their newest thing is. So, so these are the top four. I know you had just put up your hand here, Andrea. Yeah, I was really hoping that we could get Sunny to do a deep dive on co-creation. Uh, we are so lucky to have someone who's 
I think a global expert in this and has so much experience in, um, in, in that as a model. And one of the things that I wanted to say uh, in teeing that up is, by definition, as soon as something lands on a list, it's already in play to be somewhere different on the list. This is a very dynamic, it's a snapshot, but it feels like a very dynamic moment. And my take on this whole list is that, that there's a different definition of co-creation that's emerging. But I wanted to throw that out as a kind of suggestion to see if Sonny agrees with that or disagrees with that. And you only jump the gun for two seconds, Andrea, because I want to get through the full suit. Um, and then, uh, Sonny, you're first in line, okay, in terms of getting your, your meat hooks on this one. Um, here's what here's what happened between 10 to 2, I suppose. I'm, uh, and I think when we look at co-creation, I think with the thing that you're about to answer, Sonny, you get a number of different partnerships on this list as well between corporates and startups, uh, between supply chain and implementation partners. So um, over to you, Sunny. Okay, maybe to share why co-creation becomes more and more important from our perspective. So as I um, tried to explain a little bit in the beginning, the new trends that we're seeing in the mobility um, ecosystem is that mobility will become um, more personalized, it will become automated and electrified and connected. So what does it mean? When we think about shared rights, we see also a lot of startups working on autonomous um, technology on robot taxis to reduce the operational cost of having drivers, for example, in the future. So when it comes to robo taxis, you know, it's a market that's not really defined yet. No one really knows what does it really mean to put robotaxis really on the street? What are the requirements to really make them automotive freight safe? What are the future needs of passengers who will enter robotaxis? What are the safety requirements? And how can we make the ride really safe and convenient? So for all of these topics, um, the startups that are working on um, AD technology or robotaxis, they need partners. Um, they typically look um, to tier ones like Bosch or also other companies who have the domain expertise, while we as um, a traditional tier one, we don't really have the expertise how robotaxis are run and what um, the future needs of, of um, passengers and also operators of these robotaxis are. And that's why um, this is a space, an undefined space of the future that may become scaled or really commercialized in four to five years, we don't know, um, to really prepare ourselves and also the startups in that space to, to make that possible to develop technologies that um, make it possible to commercialize. And that's where the co-creation becomes imminent because um, we need the insights from these startups to understand how these robotaxis in the future should look like. And um, we need them to also tell us how we can participate in this whole innovation process to really develop solutions of the future that meet um, the needs of future mobility. Um, it's a learning process, um, learning process a lot for us because we um, are not operating those fleets. At the same time, we want to go into that space and, and really enable um, these startups in the space to have solutions that um, will help them in their operations. So co-creation is definitely a need and um, that's why we are really now focused on uh, finding the partners and developing partnerships where it's not really the typical customer supplier relationship anymore, but really partnering and developing better solutions together. I think just from my outsider's point of view, again, I think Bosch has a reputation for this, not only like in, in real operational process terms, but 
um, even somebody that hasn't really worked with Bosch a lot in the past, um, I have this impression or reputation of the fact that Bosch is uh, on the leading edge. It's almost not only in real terms, but perceived terms, I think, um, you know, you've got a reputation of reaching out and actually building stuff and not going it alone. So, Carla, I'm going to um, ask, uh, throw it to you on this one in terms of any, any top line thoughts uh, on this list of activities and partners. Oh, muting again. Sorry. sorry. Um, so again, I, I would say highly relevant to a service model. Um, I come with a bias of having 25 years in, in professional services, agency management, or, or CMO type of work. And um, it, even in, I guess, soft assets to services, having those strategic relationships. Um, there, there's a quote by Bill Joy, who is the founder of Sun Microsystems, um, and uh, paraphrased, um, the whole notion is co uh, collaboration is a new competitive advantage. Um, so the ability to find the capabilities out there um, to solve your imminent problem and to be able to do that over and over again outside of a closed system of your organization. So that whole notion of strategic alliances and co-creation to solve your problems and to um, make that part of your discipline is, uh, is what will redefine new service-based business models in the future. So couldn't agree more. Wonderful. One plus one truly does equal three. Dave, thoughts on this one? No, I think like, you know, big companies are really challenged to like um, try things out because you have maybe a big scale model that you can execute against, but you really can't afford to be wrong because if it, it goes wrong, it just, you know, it kind of throws your scale off. So when I was at Target, it was really hard to know, like you have 1800 stores, you know, you want to try something new, it can fail in 1800 stores. So you have to be able to, to pilot things and say, you know, what's a, what's, what am I trying to put in? How do I test a demographic of this thing with some small company often? And then if it does more, then you can scale it very efficiently. You can bring a lot of power to that as a, you know, as like a Bosch or a Target, like no one else can, but it's, it's hard to try stuff because your, your execution risk is so high. And I think one of the neat things Target did was like local brewers, like being able to bring in um, craft brews into, you know, like a, 10 store target area and find out, hey, do people want to come in and buy this stuff? And so once they found, yeah, people like to come in and buy craft brews that come from the neighborhood and they can put those on an end cap and then they figure out how to put a nice process around that and then do that in different jurisdictions where you know every town can then have you know their targets that's stocked with their local craft brews. And it became a very useful thing. But if they were to try and push something into the whole market, it would just fail, you know? So it's, it's essential. You partner with these entrepreneurs that are trying neat stuff and you have to be as an organization willing to, uh, to pilot and, and not, not hate yourself when they don't go as you <laughs> might have thought. And then, uh, the, the former beer executive me loves the fact that you brought up craft brew. So thank you on, on that yeah, one. I love craft brew. <laughs> <laughs> but, and Shelly, just quick ones on this. Um, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I just keep looking at the slide and just with the context of uh, B2C versus B2B. Um, and so my experience has been predominantly creating platforms for co-creation between businesses and consumers. Um, and I think the companies that have put that infrastructure in place, um, you know, up until this point are really going to be able to leverage that. Um, any brand that has invited their customer, their consumer to participate and be really close to their brand um, pre-virus is only going to have 
um, the talent and the capability and the output of these consumers post-virus. So I think um, it's an extraordinary opportunity to, uh, extraordinary opportunity for brands who have invested in building up this infrastructure because they will be able to leverage it tremendously. Wonderful. And I'm glad you kind of tackled platform there because Iovia is a platform, right? Um, you could have built that in a different way, but um, my sense is, you know, you've made a platform choice. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Um, third suit. Uh, I'm going to accelerate through some of these because uh, we need to at least get out and uh, manage expectations. We've got customer uh, relationships um, here and uh, well, let's just get into it. Um, you've got multi-sided kind of um, segments here. You've got trust driven as our king. You've got experience and you've got tribally based values based type of thing. So, you know, if I was to go to the ACE you know, you look at something like LinkedIn, where there's two sides, there's the recruiter, there's the marketer, there's the person trying to find a job, there's a person trying to sell to people that are in some of those spaces. Um, trust, you've got many different and I think certainly as you look at a pandemic now, um, you're really, uh, I think even pre pandemic, given the results here, people are looking for what is the authoritative source of either journalism or um, kind of product uh, veracity or um, what have you. And so um, trust is a real premium nowadays. I think this might have been on 10 years ago. I think having a service experience driven business has always been important. I think given the fact that most of our businesses are now intangible, um, makes it just that much more important now. And uh, tribal brands, I think when you look at products, they've become a lot more commodified. Where can you differentiate yourself? I think being somebody that has kind of values consistent consistent with yours probably makes sense. One of my best examples here is Patagonia, where I couldn't tell you if Patagonia makes a better sweater than Columbia, but I do know people out there that will never buy Columbia versus Patagonia just because they love kind of what they do in terms of the environment and, and standing up to um, different things that are going on. So, so those are the top four there. I'm going to throw this over to Carla first, but I'll at least um, profile 10 through two here. You see some some notable ones. I'm not too sure, Andrew, if um, ones come to the fore in terms of uh, interest for you. Yeah, I, I think my favorite one is this notion of uh, being able to understand number eight, you know, the triple bottom line social good. There's a lot of people who are reaching out and we've all gotten these, you know, completely uh, transparent. It's, we are here to help you, you know, at this moment, but they're really kind of trying to sell you some sort of infomercial. And then there are other companies like LVMH that actually said, you know what, perfume's great. And right now we need hand sanitizer. And so they did something as opposed to talking about something that showed their values. And um, I don't know, a lot about whether it was authentic, but it felt authentic. So I think that there's moments where this notion of, um, you know, triple bottom line as coming forward as your true purpose, as opposed to a slogan, this is the moment that really tests all of that. And Carla, I'll uh, let you chime in first on this one. You're a seasoned marketer, um, you know, something about customer segments and relationships. What, uh, what struck you as interesting on this list? So uh, what struck me is in the, in the center around trust-driven and experience. And, and one of the things that we know um, is a trend that's accelerated and will only become exponentially more so as we exit this moment of crisis um, is that trust um, is the currency. Uh, and there's 
increasingly uh, lower and lower trust between buyer and brand um, for a variety of reasons. Part of it is transparency. Um, part of it is the way that we interconnect with each other. And I think as we go through this process and we see some leaders rise and some leaders fall, trust from a human basis is only going to decrease. Um, and the, the other part is if trust is the currency, experience is ultimately what we're trying to sell. Um, when we uh, there were two words that resonated with me with what you said, Sean, which is um, more and more of our goods, whether they're service-based or asset-based, are increasingly intangible and commodified. That is the reality. Consumers, whether they're corporate consumers in a B2B brand um, or um, uh, direct-to-consumer, um, have many choices at hand. Suppliers, vendors, um, uh, brands. And so as we take a look at our business models, uh, I, I think these four are exceptionally important important to think about when we transform for the future. So again, I go back to what we talked about at the beginning, um, or what I mentioned at the beginning, which is uh, there's two things that we need to keep at the forefront as leaders. Um, the first is humanity. Uh, what do you know about your multi-users, whether they are your employees, your partners, or your clients or customers from a human basis? Not the data that, that your computers um, put out, but what do you know about them from a personality, from their drivers, their role in the consumer journey, not on mass, not in you know segments or demographics, but one-on-one. -on -one. And how do you understand their human behavior and be able to connect with them empathetically through through the journey? So that's first principles, and that hasn't changed since you know we began marketing hundreds of years ago. The, the, the second part though is we're enabled with the new fuel called data. Um, and how do you leverage this data in, in order to put fire to that understanding of people as human beings? And um, a lot of us talk about data, all of us talk about data, whether it's AI or, or just plain analytics, very few actually do it well. Um, when, you, when you lift the, the box in a lot of organizations, while there's a lot of talk about data, it's not necessarily clean. They're not looking at unstructured. They're looking at just conversion. Um, so the ability to truly um, uh, harness the knowledge that you have, the, the points in, in the consumer journey where you can create that connection is going to be what's going to enable organizations to succeed. So whether it's done internally, uh, through partners, through alliances, and then Underneath that, if you can create that collision of uh, creating an exceptional experience for the humans that you serve internally and externally through the data that you've unleashed, anchoring that in a purpose uh, within your organization. So again, that, that last part of, of tribal values is so key. Uh, and it, 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 organizations need to make those values beyond the, the, you know, the poster that's on your elevator, elevator walls, but something that, that truly everybody from your organization believes in and acts in good faith from the frontline individual um, up through, through the CMO. So again, it, it, these all, all resonate with me. And, and to understand that each of these aren't separate business models, but need to interconnect in a way uh, that, that enables you to reframe or re-deliver your business model effectively. So multi-sided segments, it's not just about your customer. Um, it, it is about every, every um, user that touches your brand. Understanding that trust is a new currency and it's going to be in short order as we as we exit um, uh, this new uh, as we exit this crisis and, and engage in the new normal um, delivering experience uh, a connected experience from top to bottom 
uh, across all of your segments. And then finally, um, being driven by purpose in the way that you, you choose your actions. I'm going to throw it to Andrea in a second here. I just, a uh, uh, couple things. One, we're going to go a little bit past the hour in terms of doing some Q&A here because I know there's going to be some stuff that happens and and maybe just some quick 10 second thoughts on this one before we move on to the next suit as the hour. Um, what I want to do, yeah, so Sunny has to leave. So what we're going to do is let Sunny summarize her po her perspective right up until now and, and give some parting thoughts and then we'll move on to the, the last topic. So Sunny, what, what are your thoughts about um, yeah. the observations from the first three and anything having to do with business models. So first of all, apologies that I need to um, leave sharp because right now it's a little bit a down under situation, but I wanted to be part of this conversation and I'm glad that I got to listen to the insights from the other panelists as well. Um, as to the last point um, to the segment that Carla spoke about, I cannot more agree than what Carla said in terms of the fact of trust-drivenness um, and, and gaining the trust of um, customers, but also the end consumer. And um, as Carla also mentioned, um, trust is becoming the new fuel, so is the data, because if we want to improve our services and our offerings, we need to collect the data and understand really the preferences of our customers and users better to really personalize our offerings and match them better to what their needs are. That means we also are depending on gathering a lot of data, but of course that also raises a lot of doubt and uncertainty on the consumer side. What's happening to the data? What, where is it leaking to? Could it be misused? And that's why we see from a company perspective that is um, aiming to go the path of becoming an IoT company. So coming from things, making the, our things more intelligent by adding intelligence and um, making them the internet of things. Um, we see these challenges um, from the customer market where they want us to really have this um, data, data privacy, data security, where we put a lot of emphasis on making that happen and integrating that also as part of the, the business model and see how um, we can also monetize the fact that we have a very high standard of data security, for example. So um, this is my stance on the point of trust-driven. This is um, very, very important, especially in the times of um, data-driven business models where we um, try to really uh, push this forward and raise the bars also for the data security to, to raise the level of trust. And trust also maybe going back to the topic of strategic alliance, co-creation and partnerships, to round this up is um, something that takes time to build up the trust towards our startups that we work with, to not let them feel that as a big company you're being overruled or you know that you are just basically forcing on your process, processes and methods onto them, but it's really an eye-to-eye -eye partnership. And, and gaining that trust means really spending time listening and trying to understand a company that's coming from a different perspective and vice versa also for the startup the same. And um, I feel a trustful relationship is the key for having a successful co-creation um, relationship and to really end up um, developing good solutions that fit the market needs. And so, I'll say one last thing to let, um, to, to let Sunny leave. Um, one of the phrases that I've learned in, in collaborating and thinking with Sunny is this notion of don't love the startups to death. Don't you know, either That's exploit right. them and this notion of trust and win, 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 you know, you can't have it be as, it has to be a relationship where you've thought about, you know, who feels the love, who gets the value, who gets the win 
And I really have admired the way that Sonny and Bosch have approached that in terms of co-creation and these relationships. So thank you, Sonny. You're just setting a great standard and we hope to keep the collaboration conversations going. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna have well, to do it. Thank, thank you, you Sonny. For having Thanks, me. Sonny. And um, if there are any questions um, also from the panelists or the people are, that are on the line, you are free to reach out to me via LinkedIn or via email. So I'm happy to, to stay in touch and to discuss further. So. Thanks, Sean and Andrea, for having me and uh, conducting this so professionally and nicely. It was a very interesting discussion. Thank you, Great. everyone. Good. I'm going to make the dictatorial call here and just uh, move on to the fourth suit, just uh, for the sake of um, getting so. Uh, appreciate that. Um, last one, channels and monetization. We've got um, 13 once again here. Um, this is kind of the really, who are we making money with and how are we making it? Um, these are the first four that toppled up to the top. And as I recall, the first one was e-commerce, right? So e e yeah, A is e-commerce. Direct to customer, uh, and that really should be direct to consumer. And dynamic pricing were the first four um, that came to the top. E-commerce, as much as we think, oh my God, that's probably being on for 15 years. It's barely 15% of the overall retail marketplace and it's still growing in double digits. And so as much as you might think, oh, I expected to see that, there's still worlds of growth uh, involved in e-commerce. And certainly given this recent pandemic, governments are even forcing people into a situation where maybe they haven't used e-commerce before, but now that's their only option. Subscription as a service, think about nearly everything in your life. Um, that's interesting anyway, um, may come to you as a subscription nowadays, whether it's online and software, whether it's offline in terms of pet food or customer products or what have you. Direct to customer, I think a lot of companies in this pandemic are saying, uh, I have no other option to go through but to actually sell directly to my customer. And so they're getting rid of the middleman in between. And certainly as a sports fan, I've seen dynamic pricing where the cost I pay for a Boston Red Sox uh, baseball game is much different than a Florida Marlins baseball game. And so um, there's enough data out there and enough ability to change your pricing and make it more fluid based on customer demand and what you expect in the future. So those are the top four. Um, the rest of the nine within this channels and monetization area are here. Andrew, I'll flip it to you and then throw it over to who hasn't gone first. No, yet? let me let Dave go first because, as I said, he's the king of omni-channel thinking. Uh, and I think that there's a, just a lot to learn from Dave. So let me let you jump right in. No, so I had a, I'd always found like your channel decision is really related to, you know, where you are in your, in your company. You know, like what can I afford to do? You know, how can I afford to sell? And uh, often people make their decision just based on, hey, I created this new soap, I wanna to sell to people. So the only way you're gonna get traction is by going online. But you know, then you're a target and you're saying, okay, I've got 1800 stores and Amazon's kicking my butt every day. You know, my channel strategy is stores first and then how do I get good in, in this other channel online? And I think that you know, Amazon the same way is like, hey, we can only get so good being just online and now we need stores, so let's go buy Whole Foods. And so Whole Foods was kind of like a distribution strategy that came as giving them more footprint to have people come into the Whole Foods that now you can find like Amazon lockers there. So it's basically, you know, adapting your channel strategy based upon how you can touch people in a way that is more, you know, real time, I think. You know, so I think there's a, uh, a notion that it's somewhat binary, that it's this or it's that. It's, it's really like, 
where do you begin and what's your next play? You know, like how do I amplify my, my, my core with something, something that is new. And so the, uh, the thing I thought was really interesting to see like Target did was everyone thought, you know, Brian Cornell, great guy, CEO, you know, went on Squawk Box or wherever he went, said, we're going to put all this money in stores and you know, the stock tanked and it was like, you're a fool. Everyone wants to go online. But really what they said is, you know, Target has a footprint where 95% of the U.S. population is within five miles of a Target store. So we're much better positioned to execute real-time ordering than Amazon is because they only have these DCs. And so their store-based model was then amplified by driving up and pickup. You can order your stuff, drive the store, come in a parking slot, people stick your stuff in your car, which was very appealing. So it's not one size fits all, but I think the, the channel strategy someone adopts is really like, you know, what can you afford to do? So online becomes a nice way to start, but it, it doesn't fully scale. You know, you have to, like Bonobos was a, started online, then they had to come down and store where people could touch it. So, so it's not a one size fits all, but it's, um, it's a, uh, it's really like starting where you are, find if you're achieving your goals and then figuring out what's next. Prudent advice. And it's interesting, we're almost in that second or third era of, of e-commerce here too, where unlike Target that was retail and went e-commerce, you've got, you know, exclusively e-commerce brands that are now starting to build the retail environments out to showroom some of their sure. stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, they have to because online only scales to a certain size and then you've got to kind of get down to the ground. Yeah. Shelly, um, quick thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, all of this resonates with, with me for sure. Um, if I go back to the direct-to-consumer line that we have on the west coast of Canada. Yeah, that's where we started. We spun up a Shopify shop. We went direct to consumer. And very quickly, we realized that everyone wanted to interact with the product. So then we had to start creating these live experiences so that people could interact with the product. Um, then we had to explore paid media. And so just like what you were saying, David, is what we thought was a very linear exercise of just going direct to consumer very much wasn't. Um, and so we've had to create these different types of experiences in order to monetize and commercialize the wares that we have. Um, and then additionally, what we have found is, um, you know, the community around that direct to consumer um, line is really important. So again, that's where, you know, the trust and the values um, are being embedded inside of the brand. And then how does that translate into an online experience as well as an offline experience? So I think, um, you know, even the startups, and I would consider that business to be very much a startup, um, we're, all, we're all going through these iterations of what these different levels of a consumer experience looks like um, and how might that uh, be monetized. Actually, it's interesting because you've, you've come at it from so many different um, businesses, right? Um, uh, your direct-to-customer business fashion uh, is your new addition to your wardrobe, I guess. Um, exactly. Carla, final thoughts on this one? No, I, I, I think um, all, all of the panels have, um, uh, have really covered the, the key area. Um, it, it is about thinking about a world as a complex ecosystem. And if you come at your business with, with that point of view, uh, it, 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 rather than a linear point of view, that's what's going to create success in the future. 
I'm, I know our chat line has been going off like mad and I always feel bad if you cut it off. So I'm going to do the two minutes of housekeeping and then we're going to keep this open if the panelists can stay with us um, to answer some of the questions that served up and maybe this is kind of the after party, if you will. So hopefully all of you are able to um, stick around with us. I'll, I'll either look at head nods no or head nods yes as being uh, able to maybe- give us, a th give us a thumbs up if you can because then we can literally see it. Can you stay? Yes, yes, yes. Great. Um, and I'll say one quick thing too. Um, the community has asked how, oh, that's a good phrase actually, okay. how to stay in touch with us, how to get in touch with us. Um, we have all kinds of ways that we'll show you in a little bit. Second of all, that we will definitely get you the recording of everything, even if you've had to leave. So people who had to leave at the top of the hour or whatever, you'll get the full recording that also includes the deck, uh, you know, as part of it. And if you want to reach us, you know, Sean will go through that in just a moment. Also on Thursday, we'll talk in a little bit about this open forum that we're having, because then that really gives us a chance to hear more from the community, which is, which is the goal. There's so much to process. So back to you, Sean. So yeah, this is the closeout where we capture some of that. Here's kind of where everybody is. Hopefully, uh, if they've come in from here, uh, Carla, uh, Shelley, Dave, you'll accept them gladly as being uh, non-spammers. <laughs> Uh, we are doing this on Thursday. My hope is both to our panelists and the people that have joined us today. Um, this is not uh, about us talking. I think we'll do two minutes off the top and it's really just a group of smart people getting together across the world and trying to figure out where this is all going. Um, and as mentioned by Andrea, both on YouTube and six different podcast entities, we'll be syndicating this over the next uh, two or three days and uh, getting the card deck out. Um, you know, uh, given the pandemic, I'm not too sure because uh, one of our manufacturers in Italy of all places, but um, we'll be getting at that out at some point in the near distant future. And these are our next two uh, webcasts. We're doing something on cross industry stuff um, on April 7th and on April 21st, we're doing the future of finance. And uh, why don't I pivot to you, Andrew? I know we had some questions that were brought up before the call and some questions on the call. Where do you want to take us? Yeah, so there's one question about healthcare in general. We, I know that no one here is necessarily a specific healthcare back, uh, has a background, but in terms of health tech, especially since we are so aware of this notion of testing and hospitals and what's going on in our supply chain and, and the business models that are required, uh, one of the things that we noticed is in the United States, there are reimbursement fees, and we just found out this is an anecdote, but I think that it's something that's sort of the tip of a larger iceberg. For instance, um, there was a reimbursement code for a, what they, you know, like an online or a, or a phone visit with a doctor. Very few providers offered it. A lot of providers would reimburse at $15 for that service versus a live office visit. And so in physical therapists, for instance, they found another way to get that code extended temporarily um, to, wait a minute, you know, your post-op, your foot's not working, you need to see someone, you don't wanna be exposed to the virus, you gotta give us an alternative, it's temporary. Our theory is that genie will not go back in the bottle and there will be other issues like this where it's like, oh, you know, suddenly we have this new opportunity that's temporary. So um, thought about that a little bit. Health, healthcare, um, anybody want to chime in in terms of healthcare, health tech? It's another thing to distribute that's always been felt about as a, you know, very private and personal thing. And I think as, you know, this thing gets, you know, more distributed, it's not like uh, anything else because there's a lot of privacy, you know, and security concerns and you know, the challenges of handling that is very complex and people aren't, 
you know, ready for everything right now. I think there's this crisis will push some models forward that'll be interesting to see. But um, you know, how do you uh, how do you manage that in a like a HIPAA compliant way is going to be uh, going to be a, a, a really interesting to see. Well, I think that's a great point, Dave, and I'll just do one follow-up because I know we have more questions. But, um, you know, we, we have just been working in Asia last year a lot and uh, in China and in, and in Japan. And one of the things that people say about the West versus the East is how the culture, and yesterday I was on this conference call with people in Brazil, and they said, you know, we're rebels. We're not going to put face masks on. We're not going to, quote, behave, you know. Um, culturally, some of the things that have to do with surveillance have to do with tracking individuals. If Carla was at a party with 15 people and those 15 people need to be contacted, you know, is that creepy or helpful from a societal perspective to have that information and use it in that way? Well, if it's to prevent a pandemic, that's one set of ethical issues. If it's to be uh, intrusive and, you know, understand pre-existing conditions, prevent you from being insured, that's a completely different. So what you've all been saying about trust and data and security and, and the cultural underpinnings of all of those um, is really, to me, you know, very important to what you were saying, Dave, as well. Um, so Sean, do you wanna to go to another question? We have lots and lots of questions. Yeah, I know, I, and I wasn't monitoring the channel. I'm thinking as people are still on here, if there are ones that- Oh, I've got one. Yeah, so Nana was talking about, she's from Germany and this whole notion of GDPR compliance. Um, I, you know, on Thursday, I'm hoping you'll join us, Nana, to, um, to, to talk about this because um, I know there are a lot of companies that we deal with, you know, right now it's symbolically, you know, this GDPR thing that comes up when you wanna go on a European website. What are some thoughts, Carla and Shelley and Dave about GDPR? Any thoughts? Well, it's a, uh, <laughs> no, it's a striking the right balance between, uh, you know, like a service and, you know, and, 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 and privacy. And it's, it's, uh, you know, everything's bound. Every, it's hard to develop a service when the rules change, like when you cross a boundary in different areas, it's really a, it's a fascinating topic. And, um, you know, you know, on the phone side, it's really making sure that everything's wiped off phones when I, I'm in the used phone business big big scale and it's uh you know that's a big thing but no gbtr it is very uh very complex and you were just working in europe i mean how did that affect your business in europe um in terms of gdpr well i, I think like in the in the fundamentals of what happens it happens the same everywhere in the usability and when stuff gets on your device you know where is that able to be used it's it's hard enough to know where the phones are let it know what's on each one of them and making sure it's compliant with every single app you may choose to download and how that thing behaves and it's some stuff in in california that created this chat app that's violating every rule and in, in history in the european union you know it's it's hard to hard to keep the, keep that all together well and i'll speak for sunny and also for a project that we did the future proofing next um, perspective in terms of a project in automotive where the differences in culture and also the regulatory and cybersecurity that we were working on last year in China, um, in Europe, and in the US, the sensitivities around cybersecurity were so different that you literally had to think about the design of the user interface completely differently in each of the cultures. And that, that was just you know, a big wake up call that you know, GDPR is a mindset uh, the European mindset around, uh, and we, we do a lot in the Nordic region, and the notion of 
you know, um, trustworthiness of data is uh, super, super important. I'll do one more question and then Sean, I, you know, we could go on forever and we would love to, but I'll do one more question. Um, and then we would love for each of this, the panelists other than Sunny who had to leave to do a kind of a one news you can use, you know, like one insight that we've had, one takeaway that, you, that we've all had from being together. We really love that. Um, so the question is, um, okay, uh, how about this one? Um, how long should it take to change business models? You know, what are, the, what are the moments that go from gradually, you know you should be changing, but then suddenly, you know, like gradually, we know we should have a work at home option. Suddenly Zoom is like the biggest thing in the world, right? So what, you know, what are your thoughts about what are the, the tipping points? Um, and anybody can jump in. And then, as I said, we'll do a kind of round robin of final thoughts. Shelly, you want to go? Oh, okay, Carla, go ahead. Uh, sure. Um, most of the clients that I've, ser I've served have been Fortune 100 companies. So, you know, whether it's large car companies or banks or what have you. And um, part of the reality is as much as we want to shift, it's really hard to move a cruise ship. Um, and so um, a best practice that I've seen is not only are you doing your requisite um, strategic planning, so whether that's, you know, a quarter or a year, five years, if anybody does that anymore, um, but, but actually doing scenario planning for 15 or 20 years out. So while you have your, your visibility into the current quarter and what you owe your shareholders, looking um, in, in terms of how you're going to leapfrog as part of your, your business discipline is what's going to be key. And that'll allow you to make the little shifts and the tests here and now to enable you to make the leap that's necessary um, before crisis uh, requires it. Great. Shelly? Dave? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to, again, I think it depends on the context that you're in right now. Um, our family office invests in startups, um, and then we've got the 51, and I mentioned we have 17 companies in that portfolio, and so all of these companies are um, actively right now looking at whether or not they have to pivot their business model um, and that needs to happen in mere days not um, you know they, they are not cruise ships um, but I think that there's an enormous opportunity for you know both those companies that have enormous amount of cash on hand to disrupt things like um, medical medicine um, and how it's been delivered like an Apple like how how soon will it be before you know our handheld devices which we use for for mobile and calling um, essentially will become those medical devices um, and so I think some companies are really well positioned for that I think there's going to be that that group of companies in the middle that are not going to be able to adapt nor do they have the cash or the capital to adapt and then I think there's going to be this emergence of all of these new companies um, that with very, very few things limiting them about what they can or cannot do are going to, to kind of birth a, no, a whole new set of entrepreneurial ventures that are going to be very, very disruptive. So that would be kind of, you know, my observation and, and comment to that question. So I'll go to Dave and then we'll go backwards. So Dave, I'll let you answer the question and also give a kind of news you can use or an aha or some insight that you had from being part of this conversation. So we'll go Dave and then we'll go Shelly and then we'll do Carla and then uh, Sean will close us out. So Dave, um, any final insights of that question or just anything yeah. that was an insight? Uh, I, think, I think like a company that isn't like, doesn't have somebody inside that's 
manically paranoid about what would I cause if I were a competitor? Like, what would I do that would really kill me and have somebody inside really thinking all the time, like, if I had unlimited capital, how would I kill I'm currently working in from an inside so that you know, you know like, something someone could do? Like, uh -huh. if they efficiently do that, you got to, and if you're honest with yourself and say, wow, if I were doing that, you can probably expect someone's thinking about that. That's how I would say how fast you need to change. Right. Um, but that, that my takeaway thought is, and one thing I didn't really get into is this circular economy notion, you know, that um, I think is catching on. There's a, um, there's a real obligation to, you know, the, to the world and to the um, community that the things that people make have to be thought about through the whole life cycle of those. It's so irresponsible to manufacture a product that at the end of its life cycle is going to end up in a landfill without discussion about how does that thing break down? You know, looking at like a toaster or looking at a, you know, a Wii or things like that. And particularly in the phone business where I'm from, I'm thinking every OEM, whether you're making uh, refrigerators or cell phones, has to design a cost of second life into the original material that allows the authorized second life users and distributors of that to afford parts to keep that thing moving you know, into its next life cycle so that this thing can stay along. And at the end of that, it needs to go away. So there's a big movement around that that um, we didn't get into, but I think, you know, it's, uh, it goes far and above just, you know, loyalty and being a nice company, but also like, you know, the throwaway disposability of everything just has to stop. That's wonderfully inspiring. Uh, Shelly, final thoughts. Um, I don't really think I have much uh, to add. I think, um, David, your comment's really spot on. I think, you know, consumerism as we knew it um, is gone. Um, you know, I think in some cases this virus is, is, is the world telling us that what we've been doing for so long isn't sustainable. So um, I, I, I think, you know, in one part I'm quite sad about what's going on and the other part I'm quite um, invigorated. Um, to see what types of innovation um, are going to happen going forward. Great. Carla, final thoughts. Anything you learned? I, any insights? Absolutely. I, I would echo um, uh, what David had said. Is, um, in, we are in a radical reset. Um, and many business models um, that have needed to change will change. Um, uh, and following that, we're all connected. And so as leaders, the choices that we make now and how we reset our businesses, how we innovate, what business models we create are so critical in redefining um, the new economy. And so looking at trust as the currency behind that um, and, and principles and purpose, uh, we all have a fiduciary duty to each other and, and to the world um, to put that at the forefront. Great, so Sean, I'll let you close us out. Um, no, I'll, actually I'll say something. This was wonderful. Thank you so much to the panelists. Um, I will let Sean thank everyone more officially, but this was actually very thought provoking. When, when you look at statistics and how people respond from the field, it feels like data in its cold sense, but data in its warm sense when it comes alive and when we have conversation about it and when, when we discuss together the implications gives me a lot more, I call it rational optimism, how we can take the facts that we see and translate them into leadership inspiration for a different world and a different future. And I have felt extremely lucky to hear this conversation, be part of it today. So to you, Sean, to close us out, thank you to the panelists.
Yeah, and just a, a small little process thing too. I know Dave, you had mentioned circular economy. It did show up on the list somewhere. I think it's around <laughs> like the sixth or seventh suit of uh, the yeah. channels and monetization. So uh, it did make it there, but I suspect that will climb up as the years go on. Um, uh, so as Andrew said, I want to thank all four of our panelists for being so gracious with their time. Uh, I know we went over our stipulated time, but great topic uh, with a lot of stuff to cover. So I do thank you for, for bringing your best to the table. A um, couple things. One, we are doing this on Thursday um, and it will go, I think we've booked in for longer than an hour, but essentially I think most of the activity will go for half an hour. So please, if you have any insight or can support others that may need some insight, um, you know, please join us on Thursday as well. Um, and as well in terms of where this uh, 52 business models is going, we'll obviously syndicate this two, three days from now uh, in its various places and we'll email that out to people. And we'll also be building the card deck over the next four or five weeks to give a full experience to people who need it. And so simply thank you everybody. Thanks for hanging in um, for, I think we still have about 60% of the people that started with us. So um, that's probably a pretty good thing given the, how far we've gone. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks on Cross Industry Movers. Thank you everybody. We'll see you in the future.